Well, I do want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue our study in Mark chapter 2. And as we continue our journey through this chapter, where the Lord Jesus Christ continues to defend his ministry against religious opposition of the scribes and Pharisees, we're going to see that the opposition only continues to build. And chapter 2 began with the healing of a paralytic man who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the criticism of Jesus only grew stronger when he said to the man's son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy, claiming that only God had the authority to forgive sins as they failed to see the deity of Christ. Next, Jesus called a tax collector named Levi to follow him, which literally rocked everyone's boat because of the stigma that the Jews had towards tax collectors during this time period. There was a group, there was no group, excuse me, of people that were more despised than the tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low, known for corruption and greed. Tax collectors were considered the ultimate betrayers to the Jewish people. They were prohibited from attending the synagogue. They were kicked out of their own families. And as we learned that People could even lie to tax collectors. It was permissible, according to rabbinic tradition, to lie to them without consequence. So when Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him as one of his disciples, and then he even attends a banquet feast with other tax collectors, whom many, we learned, started to follow Jesus as well, the ministry atmosphere surrounding Christ is really heating up. So much so that the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples about it. And overhearing them, our Lord replied by affirming his gospel call is to those who are broken, not those who are proud and self-righteous. It's important that we have this context fresh in our minds. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include the account that we're going to study today, and it always comes immediately after Jesus called Levi or called Levi to follow him. And you might be interested to know why all three accounts have Jesus and the disciples questioned about fasting immediately after his call. And we're going to answer that question today. It will also help us uh, see our ongoing, um, the ongoing dangers of being self-righteous. And our study last week basically gave us an introduction to the problem of self-righteousness, which is an aspect of, uh, that, of the critics that Jesus faced on a regular basis. Let's read Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 together to see how the Lord will disciple us again. Starting in verse 18 from the New American Standard, it reads, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. As you can see, the title of our message today is Feast or Fast. The answer, or excuse me, the question and answer. And what appears to be a simple question on the surface about fasting is really going to be used masterfully by the Lord as God's word provides two lessons to help you and I be on guard against a self-righteous attitude which is incompatible with the gospel. It starts with a loaded question. And just like a loaded gun, the question contains ammunition. And the bullets in the chamber are pride and self-righteousness. And we need to see just how deadly and spiritually life-threatening they are. Lesson number one comes in verse 18. It's this, beware of practicing self-righteousness. And it starts with an observation and ends with an assertion. Look at the beginning of verse 18. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Let's stop here briefly just for some context. Fasting meant to abstain from food for a designated period of time. And the Mosaic law, believe it or not, only prescribed one day in which the Jews would fast. And it was on the Day of Atonement that would take place every year. And it's discussed in Leviticus 16.29. It's known amongst the Jews as Yom Kippur. And it was intended to be a day of deep mourning over sin. As a result, mourning and other fast days were often initiated in times of crisis. And we see this grow in its popularity before and after the Babylonian captivity. And fasting became regarded as being meritorious. During the time of Jesus, the pious Pharisees fasted twice a week and it happened on Mondays and Thursdays. You may even recall from the account in Luke chapter 18 when he's praying and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so, like the unjust and the swindlers and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and pay tithes on all that I receive. Again, that's mentioned in that account. This was born out of the tradition of the Pharisees who added these two days of fasting to their scorecard so that they could display their self-proclaimed holiness before others. You may also recall that when Jesus taught about prayer and fasting in Matthew chapter 6, he specifically instructed the disciples about fasting. In fact, turn there with me so you can see it. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 16. And this was the instruction that Jesus gave to the disciples about fasting. Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And their reward, of course, was being recognized by people. Verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father 
who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In the context, Jesus is teaching about self-righteousness. And if you look all the way at the very first verse of the chapter, go to Matthew 6, 1, he even gives the warning, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And this drives home our first point. There were three main pillars of, of ministry in Judaism, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting which ironically are the three that the Lord addresses in Matthew 6 when exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who used all three to draw attention to themselves. And this is what the Pharisees loved to do. It's actually the, the, the Pharisees, the, the name itself actually means separated one or separatists. And they thrived on religious self-promotion and practice. And this explains why in rabbinic tradition that they continued to add more and more rules, more and more steps that you had to climb. And they would climb them so that they could elevate themselves over the common man. Back in Mark 2, verse 18 also mentions disciples of John. And it may seem surprising to you that the disciples of John here are associated with the Pharisees, but both groups were concerned with the problem raised by the conduct of Jesus and his disciples. One commentator shares, the Pharisees may well have used the perplexity of John's disciples to push them into raising the problem with Jesus, end quote. In Matthew's account, it says that John's disciples asked the question, This coming question in light of the immediate context helps us to see that Christ and his disciples are being viewed negatively and that they're breaking the religious protocol of both groups. And this ultimately leads them to asking their loaded question. Look at the middle of verse 18. And they came to him and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Many believe And it makes perfect sense that this question came at the exact same time that Jesus and the disciples were inside Levi's house feasting and fasting, or not fasting, feasting while the the scribes and the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting, right? So there's this contrast, and you can only imagine if you're fasting and then um, those who have had that experience, and if all of a sudden you're around a lot of food, a lot of um, joy, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it would uh, necessarily use joy, but you, you um, are challenged really when all of a sudden you see a lot of food being consumed. And so this is a double whammy from their perspective because not only are they breaking the religious protocol by associating with these tax collectors who they should have no connection with and no interaction whatsoever, but they're also not honoring the pharisaical and self-imposed tradition of fasting. And one commentator shared this keen insight, the Pharisees' attitude derived from, among other things, the false assumption that true religion was solemn, a joy, joyless affair, an assumption which some people hold even today. Our commentator goes on to share this. I once knew a man who believed that Christians should be solemn. 
He was a young believer, full of zeal, but without the ability to keep things in perspective. So he would go off on self-righteous tangents. On one particular occasion, he concluded that never once in the scripture does it say Jesus smiled or laughed. Therefore, good Christians do not smile. Never mind that arguments from silence are patently, patently dangerous. Never mind the repeated smiling wit of Christ. Good Christians do not smile. And I can still see him sitting there with his wife and a few like-minded friends through church in the front row. Righteous but sober, holy but unsmiling. And then he goes on and says, absolutely absurd. Some of us have met clergy like this, formal, speaking in sepulchral tones with their neckties twisted around their souls. And the Pharisees were very much like this. And the religion, it was this external charade that people could see. They actually would whiten their faces so that they would look more pale when they fasted. They would literally heap uh, ashes on their head and wear torn clothes and walk around so that they could make a public display of their repentance. In their minds, you could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. And they sought spirituality. They thought, excuse me, spirituality makes you do things that you do not want to do and keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. And sadly, there are some today that adopt such thinking. Christianity is seen as a set of law, a, a, a set of rules that must be uh, abided. Christian joy and Christian liberty are seen as being oxymorons. The only option is to live out the law of God to its fullest extent and suffer unwillingly with the consequences. And you'll know you're living righteously when you're living the most restricted life that you can possibly live because that's how God wants you to live. That's how he wants you to live. How sad it is to see this yoke of unrighteousness. Victoria was sharing uh, some stories with me about uh, the Russian Baptist church and her experience from what she heard from her parents and the churches there that women who uh, colored their hair or painted their nails or plucked their eyebrows, they were told that it was sin. And then there are those who take extreme self-righteous positions on alcohol or tobacco use. Movies, dancing, tattoos, piercings, art, whether you can eat meat or not, playing cards or board games, gambling, and on and on and on the list can go. Perhaps you've heard this story. A man once complained about the amount of time his family spent in front of the TV. His kids watched too many movies and neglected their schoolwork. His wife preferred game shows to getting the housework done. His solution, he said, as soon as the baseball season's over, I'm going to pull the plug. <laughs> there are some ways, and maybe, maybe it isn't taking issue with those things. Maybe lipstick and plucking eyebrows isn't going to be necessarily viewed as sin. But what are some practical ways that we can display self-righteousness. I want to offer just a few. We can be self-righteous when we judge the sins of others while look at, overlooking our own sins. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, literally the roof beam, 
out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And again, it doesn't mean that there there couldn't be sin in somebody's life that needs to be addressed. But the point, and we're going to see this develop, is to always have the righteousness of Christ in you, not a self-proclaimed righteousness. Number two, we can be self-righteous when we're more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. And Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 28, says, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Good question. Are you and I living our righteousness out, Christ's righteousness, out from the inside out? Is it from the heart? Or is it an external show? Number three, we can be self-righteous when we compare ourselves with others. And this is just like the publican and the Pharisee, the, 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 the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. We've mentioned this account where he, he, he's praying to himself, right? Not to God. He's not looking vertical. He's actually looking horizontally, comparing himself to the tax collector who was beside him. Thanking God that he wasn't like the tax collector. How about you? Are you ever, do you find yourself in prayer thanking God that you're, you're, you aren't like those other sinners losing sight of who we truly are without Christ? Number four, we can be self-righteousness when we blame others for our sin or our circumstances. Rather than being humble and responsible, we can blame others when God wants us to take accountability and responsibility for our actions. We blame it on someone else. It's, it's their fault. They were the one that, that invited me to go to this place. They're the ones that did this or that. And this is as old as the curse itself, right? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Heard that before? How easy it is for us to fall into this deadly sin of self-righteousness. And God's solution is for us to deal with self-righteousness at the heart level before him. Come to Christ, confess it, turn from it, and he will forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yes, that includes self-righteousness as well. The lesson that our Lord would have us see is to be aware and be on guard against such attitudes that try to creep into our walks. Do you see any self-righteousness creeping into your life? Here's why it's so dangerous. For the believer, being self-righteous is damaging. It points people to the imperfect standards of our own righteousness instead of helping them see their need for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that is how our testimonies are to function as we truly are salt and light for those around us. As Christians, we must live with Christ's righteousness in view, not our own. For the unbeliever, self-righteousness is damning. And we'll see this more clearly in the second lesson that we get to in our message. Our our Lord's going to respond to the the scrupulous scribes and the, the proud Pharisees. 
And they're calling our Lord and his disciples into question. And they're outraged with their actions. Why aren't he and his disciples fasting? How can they be celebrating? And more specifically, how can they be celebrating with those people? Why isn't he honoring our religion? Why does he ignore the required separation from sinners? Why is he not fasting with us? And part of their self-righteousness and the reason that they failed to recognize Jesus as the Christ is because they thought, I'm so holy. I'm so good. I'm so righteous. And really, if he was the Christ, right, he would recognize me for who I am. If he's truly the Christ, he's going to, I mean, look at me. Look at me. They were so self-absorbed and so self-righteous that they, not God, became the arbiter of what was good. They, not God, became the judge of what was righteous. They, not God, became the judge of who was holy and who was not. And we do this too when we're tempted to judge people through the lens of our own righteousness. When we compare people against our own standard of goodness and morality or the level that we think that we have achieved instead of using the filter of scripture and Christ's righteousness. Our passage reveals two lessons to help you be on guard against a self-righteous attitude which is incompatible with the gospel. The first lesson is to beware of practicing self-righteousness. Our second lesson is to believe in the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. Look at our Lord's response in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. A wedding celebration in Jewish tradition typically lasted seven days for a virgin bride. And if a woman was remarried, it lasted for three days. And friends and guests who were invited to the wedding reception, they had one responsibility, and that was to enjoy the festivities that were taking place. And there would be food and wine and music and dancing, and it would be inside the house and outside the house, out into the streets, and it was a big party. And it reflects, to some degree, what takes place at a wedding reception that we have today. Although Victoria and I were talking about this, we're like, can you imagine it lasting for seven days? Like, you know, the, all the wedding guests on your honeymoon. <laughs> Even rabbis were expected to join the celebration with their students. And any obligations from the Torah or the rabbinic teaching was to be postponed until after the celebration ended. Any thought of fasting at such a moment would have been out of the question. It would have been, it would have been a, a, a request that was completely incompatible with what was taking place. And so here Jesus is using the wedding imagery with regard to their question about fasting to radically shift the attention to his authority. He doesn't have a problem with fasting. In fact, he even gives instruction as we read in Matthew chapter 6 on how the disciples were to fast. But he did take issue with how it was practiced and imposed on others with an attitude of pride. And it was a hot button issue for him. One commentator added this, 
The difference between Jesus and the disciples of John and the Pharisees pertains to an attitude towards Jesus' ministry. Jesus describes his mission as a wedding, himself the bridegroom and his disciples guests of the bridegroom. A wedding is not a time to abstain, but to live it up. Jesus, again, thrusts his person and mission prominently, inescapably to center stage. If the disciples of John and the Pharisees grasp the true significance of his person, they will understand why they should celebrate rather than fast. Their noncompliance with the party, however, attests to the rejection of his person. And Jesus is trying to help them see just how incompatible their question is at the moment. He wanted them to see the, the, the righteousness and the reality of who was present. That he was right there, the one and only righteous one before them. If they truly saw who it was, the long-awaited Messiah with the kingdom of God at hand right there before their presence, they would be joining the party. They would be welcoming him. They would be celebrating just as, as Levi, who was just called to follow him who was forgiven, who was experiencing the joy of the Lord, who was celebrating. This is a time of feasting here. Feasting. And this is an opportunity to to savor Christ, but their prideful and unbelief, uh, unbelieving hearts blinded them. And I couldn't help but think about Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And those of you who are familiar with the account know that Jesus is going along and uh, Martha actually invites Jesus into the home. And she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. And I'll read the account. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. Like Martha, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were worried and bothered about so many other things, none of which was more important than how others viewed them and their self-righteousness. And they needed to see that there was one thing before them that mattered most, but they didn't see it. How about you, dear friend? Do you ever find yourself worried and bothered about so many other things that it causes you to neglect the one who matters most? Is there a standard of self-righteousness that is robbing you of your joy and your fellowship with Christ? We all need to be like Mary who find ourselves going to the foot of Christ and listening and meditating on his words and what he has to share with us. And enjoying deep and rich times of communion and fellowship with him. 
Well, let's get back to our text in, in Mark 2.20. Ironically, the Lord shares that there will be a time for fasting. Righteous fasting, not fasting done for show. Look at verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And this is the first reference to, that Jesus makes to his own death in the Gospel of Mark. The days for fasting will come. Listen, there's going to be a day, he's saying, where the bridegroom is going to be taken away from the party. And it is going to be a day of mourning. In the Greek, this word conveys the idea of a sudden, violent snatching away. And it's actually pointing to the Messiah and his betrayal as he's taken away in the garden. When this happens, Jesus shares, then his disciples will fast. And it won't be some self-righteous ritual, but it will be because the bridegroom was taken from them and their sorrow and mourning is going to lead to a faithful fast, not some pharisaical one. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to see and believe in the sufficiency of the Messiah's true and perfect righteousness, which is not compatible with any form of religious self-righteousness. They cannot mingle. John MacArthur had this to say about this passage. The Pharisees were into self-righteousness. Jesus preached grace. They were into denying that they were sinful. He preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiosity. He preached humility. They were into external ceremony. He preached internal transformation. They held tightly to the old he offered the new. They loved the approval of men. He offered the approval of God. They had ritual. He offered a relationship. End quote. Self-righteousness is completely incompatible with the gospel. And just like every sinner that would need to be called to faith and repentance in Christ, the Pharisees had to see that they needed to believe in the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. And there were no other options. And just to confirm that the, there was this incompatibility between God's righteousness and the righteousness that the Pharisees were trying to obtain through their false system of Pharisaical religion, our Lord shares two illustrations describing just how incompatible they are. Look at verse 21. It says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. The gospel is completely corrupted if you try to add to it Religious works, merit, self-righteousness is incompatible with the gospel of God, with the gospel of grace. And this is true of Orthodox Judaism today, which is no different than any other cult of works righteousness that exists. Even, even Islam, even Buddhists, or any other uh, Christian, uh, self-proclaiming uh, Christian religion that is boasting in works righteousness. One commentator shares, you can't mix a new patch unshrunk with an old piece of cloth. Apostate Judaism rituals and ceremonies are a worn out old garment and you cannot patch the holes in it with a piece of the gospel. It's not compatible. 
Jesus didn't come with a message to patch up the old system. He came with a message to replace it altogether. The second illustration paints an even stronger and more graphic picture for us. Look at verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In the ancient culture, they used goat skin and they would usually try to... uh, um, conserve when they would butcher the goat. Everything was used when, when they butchered animals, right? Nothing uh, went to waste. Even uh, little things that they tried to use, the bones were used for tools. Uh, the teeth were used for things. So here with the goat skin, what they, they would actually do is try to um, uh, conserve as much of the skin as possible, and then they would sew it together, and it would be uh, tanned slightly so that they could fill it with new wine. And the reason that they did this was because the skin had this natural uh, elasticity to it, right? It was, it was stretchy. And it was able to, uh, as, as the wine fermented, as the gases started to come out in, fer- in the fermentation process, it would be able to expand. But what would happen is that the old skin, the old wine skins, right? They would, they would be expanded and they would be worn out and then they would dry out. It's kind of a picture of us as we age with our skin, right? We just get wrinkly, right? Starting to notice that on my face a little bit. It starts to dry out. You start to crack. That's that's what happens to skin. And so what would happen is if you attempted to put new wine into that old wine skin, when the time would come for it to expand in the fermenting process, burst, just burst. And not only would the new wine be lost, but the, the wineskins could not serve another purpose. They were damaged goods. There was nothing good that could come from them. J.C. Ryle said this about these verses. The principle laid down in these little parables is one of great importance. It is a kind of proverbial saying and admits of a wide application. Forgetfulness of it has frequently done great harm in the church. The evils that have arisen from trying to sew the new patch on the old garment and put the new wine into old bottles have neither been few or small, end quote. And we see examples of this taking place in the scriptures as the Judaizers in the book of Galatians were trying to add circumcision uh, from from Jewish practice into, into Christianity along with baptism. And then soon after the apostles died, if we look at church history, we see records that some tried to make the gospel more acceptable by mingling it with Platonic philosophy. And today there are some Christians who call themselves integrationists, who try to impose psychological self-help principles along with the gospel to help people. And we see this taking shape in many different ways where gospel clarity is lacking. And the result with all of these attempts, all of them, is seen and described for us in verses 21 and 22. They are completely and utterly incompatible with the gospel. And it ends oftentimes with lives being torn apart. When any self-righteousness is asserted, no matter what religious system, name or form it might 
try to present itself in, it distorts and perverts the pure righteousness offered by Christ through the gospel. And the lessons from God's word are straightforward for us today. Beware of practicing self-righteousness. Number two, believe in the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness through the gospel. Well, to close our time, I want to draw our attention to an event that everyone, I think for the most part, is aware of that took place in our country this week. And it's also going to be an opportunity for us to apply the two lessons that we've just heard exhorted from God's word today. The U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage on June 26, on Friday, 2015. And this news might be very discouraging, and it may even cause some of you to wonder what the future holds for our country, as well as what the potential threats might be for the church at large. All the alumni and current students of the Master's Seminary received an open letter from Pastor John MacArthur yesterday encouraging us to shepherd our flocks considering what has just taken place. And due to the significance of the event, I wanted to take a moment to share the letter with you and it will also provide an opportunity for us to receive the counsel that Dr. MacArthur shared that blessed me so much and I'm certain that it will bless you as well. Some of you may have already seen it because it was shared on a link through social media, but here's what it says. Dear Master's man, we belong to the Master. The highest court in the land has passed its judgment. The headlines proclaim that a slim majority of Supreme Court justices considers freedom of sexual orientation a right for all Americans. This exchange of one set of values in favor of another does not come as a surprise to us who already know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. June 26, 2015 stands as a significant milestone in the American demonstration of this ancient reality. In the coming days, you will be expected as a shepherd to provide commentary and comfort to your flock. This is a critical hour for pastors and stands as another reminder of why proper training is crucial. I'm writing this short message as one pastor to another. Media outlets are bustling with updates, and I don't need to add my voice to the general fray. Instead, I want to help you shepherd your church through this confusing time, in addition to the helpful articles on the Preaching and Preachers blog. I also want to communicate the below thoughts that I trust will help you frame the issue in a biblical way. I want to draw our attention to these. Number one, no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. And the verdict yesterday does not change the God-ordained reality of marriage. God was not defeated in this ruling, and every marriage will be judged according to biblical grounds on the last day. Nothing will prevail against him, Proverbs 21.30, and nothing will thwart the advance of his kingdom, Daniel 4.35. Number two, the word of God has pronounced judgment on any nation that would reclassify evil as good, darkness as light, and bitter as sweet, Isaiah 5.20. As a nation, America continues to put herself in the crosshairs of judgment. 
As a proclaimer of truth, you are responsible for never compromising on these issues. In every way, you must stand firm. Number three, this ruling proves that we are clearly in the minority and a people set apart. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, Titus 2, 14. As I wrote in the book, Why Government Can't Save You, the standards that shaped Western culture and American society have given way to, the, to practical atheism and moral relativism. This decision has simply accelerated the rate of decline. A country will not rise above the morality of its citizens, and the majority of Americans don't have a biblical worldview. Number four, religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. In America, the Church of Jesus Christ has enjoyed unprecedented freedom. This is changing, and the new normal may include persecution that is new to us. There has never been a more important time for gifted men to help lead the church by capably handling the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians six seventeen. And this next one really needs to be emphasized. Marriage is not the ultimate battleground. And our enemies are not men and women who seek to destroy it. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The battleground is the gospel. Be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics. As you carefully guide your flock around the dangerous pitfalls ahead, remind them of the indomitable power of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. And lastly, number six, Romans 1 clearly identifies the evidence of the wrath of God on a nation. Sexual immorality followed by homosexual immorality culminating in a reprobate mind. This most recent step reminds us that God's wrath has come in full. We now see reprobate minds at every level of leadership in the Supreme Court, the presidency, cab the, presidency the cabinet, legislature, press, and culture. If our diagnosis is in line with Romans 1, then we must also follow the prescription found in Romans 1. We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In this day, it is our divine duty and calling to strengthen the church, families, and gospel testimony by shedding the pragmatic nonsense that distracts the church from its mission given by God. Homosexuals, like all other sinners, need to be warned of impending eternal judgment and lovingly offered the forgiveness, grace, and new life through the repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He closes and says, In the final analysis, your greatest contribution to your people will be to show patience and a steady confidence in the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the authority of Scripture. Turn their eyes toward the Savior and remind them that when he returns, all will be made right. We are praying for your steadfast proclamation of truth and your uncompromising stand for Christ. John MacArthur. In many ways, I feel like in God's providence, he provided the perfect study for us on the very first Sunday after the decision was made. Didn't he? That we would be aware of practicing self-righteousness. And those that don't hold to a biblical view of marriage. Those that don't have a biblical worldview. And you'll probably have some opportunities even this week to encounter co-workers about the recent decision. 
encounter classmates, maybe some even in your own family. May we all be prepared to point others towards the mercy and grace of Christ through the gospel. Through the gospel. I wrote this phrase. I wanted to share it with you. When it comes to the righteousness of Christ, you must be cross-eyed in order to see straight. Isn't it true? You must be cross-eyed in order to see straight. And when we look at that cross, we know where our righteousness comes from. We know what was nailed to it. Every single one of our sins, past, present, and future, And that when we turn by faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption on that cross and the ultimate price that he paid, what do we get credited to our account? His, his imputed righteousness, right? Not a righteousness of our own. It doesn't matter whether the sin is homosexuality or another sin, everyone must turn to Christ in faith and repentance in order to receive his righteousness. And may we point them to the cross so that Christ's perfect righteousness can be the standard that gets exalted, not our own. Amen, church? Amen? Can we be a true Baptist church and all God's people said, amen? We're not Baptist, but you get what I'm saying. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the text that you ordained for us to study this day. And it has done surgery on our hearts. Spiritually, it has operated on us. And we thank you for your divine scalpel that comes when your word is ministered, that it continues to cut away the pieces and parts of our life that truly don't honor you, that try to exalt self, that try to exalt a standard of human righteousness, our own righteousness, when the world must see its desperate need for your perfect righteousness. We thank you for allowing us to see the reality of this truth and in light of the recent decision that the Supreme Court has made, Father, we just pray, and we know this didn't sneak up on you, that in your sovereignty it was all part of your ordained plan. And yes, our country is on a moral decline, but that's because the entire world is on a moral decline. And that we do believe in a negative eschatology that things will continue to get worse as false teachers and Imposters continue to arise and more accumulated false material comes and is stacked upon that which existed before. And yet you've called us to be salt and light. You've called us to celebrate your righteousness in the presence of other people. And that does work out practically as to how we live. 
And so we do pray for our church, but we pray, Father, specifically for the church at large that you died for, that you love, that you want your wisdom to prevail through. And we pray that through the church bylaws that are established, through your word and the wisdom that comes from your word, that the churches will be protected. And we know that you'll continue to build it and grow it according to your plan. And it makes us ever so mindful of the reality that your return is imminent and that in a twinkling of an eye, we could be pulled out of here. And may our hearts not be saddened. May they see opportunity, opportunity that you've given and granted us to take the good news of Christ's righteousness and help people see their need to seek you for forgiveness, to repent of of their sin for us to continue to repent of all of our sin on an ongoing basis as well and continue to live our lives out in trusting in you and your redemption. We thank you again for this opportunity to pray together as a church. We ask second hour as we are more mindful to even pray about such matters that your spirit will guide our time. And we look forward to our fellowship. I thank you, Father, for being at a church where I get to rally with people who love you, who love your word, and want to apply it to their lives. We give you all the praise for this, asking you to bless our time and the remainder of our day. In the name of your son, amen.